0: Talking Books, our new Sock one oh six to one oh eight. The sort of average chess player wanting to make a move. He looks at a position, he sees something he thinks is going to work, he makes the move. But no, sit on your hands, keep looking at the position, look again and again and again. See if there's something you haven't seen in that first moment and then try and find the true move, the best move. And that's what uh, the very strong players are really good at doing, finding the very, very best move. And of course, often they'll be playing, in classical chess, you'll play maybe 40 moves in two hours and you may have five or six critical positions in those 40 moves. So you'll have in a way six very tricky puzzles to solve, I mean potentially more than six, obviously you have 40 moves to make and you're looking for to make the best move 40 times in two hours, but there will be five or six critical positions probably and then you need to spend a bit more time and really decide which way this game should go.
1: Is chess only chess? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill, it's lovely to have your company this evening. Well on tonight's show we're going to go deep into the competitive, ruthless, and obsessive world of chess and unravel whether chess is a science or an art. This evening I'm joined by Stephen Moss, features writer with The Guardian News and Media, whose new book, The Rookie, An Odyssey Through Chess and Life, has just been published by Bloomsbury. Best described as part history of the game, meets travelogue and self-help with loads of edge. So what is the place of chess in society? Is it all about truth, tactical possibilities and independent thinking? And is there life beyond the board?
0: Stephen Moss. I'm a writer on The Guardian. I've worked for The Guardian for almost 30 years. And uh, I've just brought out a book about chess called The Rookie An Odyssey Through Chess and Life, which um, I see as a sort of midlife crisis book. I was a very ordinary chess player at um, university. I carried on playing a bit, but like many, many players, I gave up to a large extent uh, when I had a family and then came back to it in my late 40s, early 50s. And I decided I needed to get really good at something. As a journalist, you tend to skate across the surface. At least I think you do, unless you're very lucky, and you, you settle on a specialism. I've tended to skate across the surface of many things, dipping in and out, spending a month researching something, writing a piece, and then moving on. And I felt I wanted to really immerse myself in something and try to master a discipline. And uh, I chose chess, which, as I said, I was a very average player at. And my initial aim was to be Trying to become very, very strong. My working title was for the book, was how I almost became a grandmaster. I got nothing, nowhere near that level of um, play. So I've, I scaled it back slightly and made it instead an odyssey through chess and life.
1: Well, Stephen, you're definitely the grandmaster of entertainment because it is one heck of a read.
0: The well, rookie. Right, it's it's
1: such a stimulating, entertaining, funny, vibrant, yeah. hugely energetic read. I,
0: I tried to write a book. That would to some extent speak to chess players but also speak to non-chess players and get them inside the head of the chess player and inside this world which is a very enclosed uh, introspective, quite male, quite um, uptight world so that people could empathise with the people who chose, uh, chosen in many respects to, to devote their whole life to, to the board to these 64 squares. And my starting point really was players I'd met who struggled somewhat in life. Um, they, they couldn't quite understand the rules of life. And on the board, they, to some extent, came alive. So I was very interested in that idea that the board, and, and my, my epigraph to the book is from Mikhail Tal, a former world champion, who says the the board is not just, uh, not just my home, but it's, it's a fortress, it's, it's where I express myself. And it, it's really that, that idea that, um, that they, they live to the fullest on the board but often beyond the board, perhaps they, they struggle.
1: Big wide-open question for you, Stephen. Why do we play chess? And within all of that, could it be argued that chess is a substitute for life?
0: I think in many ways it could. Uh, as I say, qu- quite a few players I've met have had struggles in life. Um, and on the board, they can understand the rules. It's, it's very clear you know, who's a winner, who's a loser. It's, very, it's literally black and white, and the, the struggle is completely absorbing. So, so a, chess pl- a, a game played at classical chess controls could be four, five, six hours, and you can completely lose yourself in the struggle. You might have, um, you know, you've got half an hour potentially to make a move if, it, if it's a critical position. And I, ha- I had several instances where I almost had like an out-of-body experience where you just become at one with the game and the board, and nothing else matters, really. And uh, it was a very sort of um, in- enjoyable kind of zen-like experience, really, kind of zen moment of this becoming more important than life itself. Usually this was when I'd gone away for a week or two weeks to play, and I was sort of inside a kind of bubble playing in a tournament. And all that mattered, really, was this, this tournament and, and this, the, game I was, the game I was playing, and um, Duchamp, uh, Marcel Duchamp, the artist who features a lot in my, in my book, he says that um, all artists are not chess players, but all chess players are artists. He was very interested in chess and, and a very strong player. He loved the idea that the moves you're creating, and they can be very beautiful and counterintuitive, are like expressions of, um, of, of art sometimes, um, and that the patterns that certain positions make, uh, you you become almost an artist of the chessboard. Of course, somebody of my standard tends not to be an artist of chess, but I'm, I'm blundering along. But but players like Tal um, certainly could come up with the most incredible and strange moves that, on the surface, look as if they'll never work. But then you look deeper, and somehow they've seen some strange pattern that will make them work.
1: Stephen, I'm just wondering, there's a great quote from the American Grandmaster. He's, he's a, a very passionate and, and lively fellow called Ben Feingold. And he, he gave you some advice, I think with something on the lines of live like a man, fight like a dog. Yeah. Is it too much to describe chess besides all the endurance um, qualities you need and the and mental stamina? Is it too much to describe it as control savagery?
0: As I've said, I mean, you can see chess as an art, but it's also... A struggle. Um, it's, it's a fight to the death. And you have some positions in chess where literally you're a move away from being checkmated and you might be a, a move away from checkmating your opponent. So it's completely knife edge. And it, it really is a kind of Darwinian struggle and, and, and very exciting. In some ways, you have to be like that in, in, in chess because they don't earn a lot of money uh, and, and they don't earn any money if they don't win prize money. So it's a very um, kind of vicious difficult world in which to to earn a living
1: You quote um, the British writer Julian Barnes Um, he he did a a long feature for The New Yorker um, a good few years ago now I think and he described chess as as something akin to searching for some kind of truth and he he kind of said it was similar to uh, in a courtroom battle so to speak
0: Yes. And this is, again, this was another crucial reason for me doing the book, really, this idea of uh, the truth of a position. I think it was um, the uh, English Grandmaster uh, Jonathan Spielman who introduced me to this idea about 10 or 15 years ago. We were looking at position. He said, where does the truth lie here? Because in any given position, um, obviously, there are many plausible moves. You have to decide which is the best move. When, When a very strong player is looking at a position, he'll all the time be asking himself or herself, you know, what, what is actually going on here? Who's winning in this position? Sometimes it can be very hard to judge that. Of course, we now have computers which are programmed to tell us uh, who is winning in a given position. We'll give very exact um, sort of arithmetical uh, scores of, of who, is, who is on top. Though, of course, they don't see everything, but they can, they can see more than they can look beyond the human, the human brain often. But um, So this idea of the truth was, became very fascinating to me. Because I, I feel that, uh, as I said, I've often skated across coming up with approximate truths, and I like this idea that you could really dig and dig and dig until you somehow knew how to find the truth of a position.
1: And it all relates to your playing instinct, though,
0: wouldn't it? It's more than instinct, really. It's, uh, I mean, you can get by on intuition, but if you, if you go on just playing on intuition, you, you won't get very far, because often uh, the most plausible moves in a position are not necessarily the best moves and, and there are many you know, one famous quote is I think it was Lasker who said something like, When you find a good move, look for a better move. Uh, you should always dig and dig, and it's the it 's the person who digs the most who will who will be the best chess player, and you have to really love the position you have to love chess so that you 're willing to just spend Obviously, in a game, you have to make a practical decision at some point because you're playing against the clock. But the the, the, the person who really loves chess, and I've seen grandmasters do this, will just obsess about a position uh, until they find the truth. And I think that's what marks the very strong player from the very average player. The average player just wants to play moves. The very strong player is always looking to establish the truth of something and is willing to look at endless variations. Just uh, tremendous patience. And it's the ability to work at chess, as well as the talent for chess, that, um, that marks out the very strong player.
1: You pitch up a very interesting question, Stephen. You ask, are chess players mad? Do you think it's fair to say that the media have kind of hyped the relationship between chess genius and a sense of madness? Or yes. that kind of erratic, crazy, single-minded? C- completely,
0: completely. The, the, the media loves love the chess archetype, so it loves Bobby Fischer. And there's an argument that Bobby Fischer, who died almost 10 years ago, is still the most famous chess player in the world. May as well still be alive. You know, People are making films about Fischer. There was one last year, a Porn Sacrifice. People are writing books about Fischer. American chess and world chess still lives in the shadow of Fischer because he, of, of course, was a brilliant player and he single-handedly took on the might of Soviet Russia and the Soviet chess machine. But he also conformed to this uh, idea that um, chess players should be crazy geniuses. Uh, I, I actually met Fisher when he went to Iceland, and uh, he was indeed completely mad, and he was genuinely mad uh, and obsessed. He um, would have moments of lucidity and then go off on some crazy rant. But um, uh, there's, a, again, a great quote from uh, the former British champion Bill Hartston, and he was really thinking about Fisher, I think, when he said that chess doesn't um, drive sane people mad. It, ke- it keeps mad people sane. And Fisher was kind of sane, well, he was pursuing the world title in his 20s. Only when he became world champion did he go off the rails because, A, he was terrified of losing the world championship, so he never played again, at least never played, a, you know, refused to defend his title, made all sorts of excuses for not playing, and then just became this figure who wandered the world for about 30 years because he'd kind of lost chess with his whole rationale. And once he'd achieved his goal there was nothing left and way. he looked over the other side of the mountain and was kind of terrified by what he saw
1: you have a beautiful quote um i think it was was it from Frank Brady who who wrote about Bobby Fischer he said if he is a rainbow he is also the storm i yeah, thought I that was that, magnificent Yes, yeah,
0: that's from one of brady's books i think yeah, yeah. And it was great to meet uh, brady I, I, part of my book i did a sort of um a little travelog element mm-hmm. i i went to play in holland in a famous tournament there uh, i then i went to the us to, to play some chess, but also to talk to people who, who knew Fisher and um, to, to play at the, uh, in New York. There's a very famous uh, chess club in New York right next to Washington Square Park where the, the kind of hustlers also play, will play you for a few dollars. So there's a, there's a great and historic chess scene there. And I also went to Russia to play some chess there and to meet, meet players. So I tried in the book. Uh, the structure of the book is um, it's divided into 64 sections like a chessboard with alternating black and white Sections, and in the, the the conceit of the book is that on the black in the black sections I'm playing, so I'm playing in tournaments. I'm generally making lots of blunders. So this is me in this uh, kind of void or this blackness, not really understanding, not getting to this truth. And then on the white squares I meet people like Feingold or grandmasters, or I look at famous players in the past who have uh, kind of cracked the code, who've understood chess, or at least uh, as much as you can understand about chess. And so. Um, it's this uh, alternation of the illumination of the white squares meeting famous players, getting their insights into the game, and then the black squares me trying to get better. And I get a little bit better. But of course, I always knew that the chessboard is always set up in a particular way with the white square on the, the right hand side. And so I started on, and each square has a, a, a number assigned to it, or a, a letter and a number assigned. So you start on, on A1, which is the black square, and you end on H8, the top right hand corner of the board. Which is also a black square. So I kind of knew from the beginning I would end up on a black square that I probably wouldn't have uh, completely cracked the code or won the British Championship or managed anything particularly spectacular. But I made a little bit of improvement, I think.
1: Um, the the great John Saunders, uh, you, you you call him Doc Saunders. I think that's his yeah. chess name. Gave you some smashing um, advice throughout yeah. throughout while you were writing the book.
0: Yes, he did. He was really important to uh, he... both a friend and a, a, a teacher. And. Uh, uh, just an uh, kind of menuensis somebody who's played chess all his life and you know had, had a great uh, has thought about it profoundly so he was really, really essential to the, to the kind of the development of the book. Really.
1: He helped you. Qu- he helped you deal with your own impulsiveness. I think is how you describe it yes. on the board. Yes. He gave you advice. He said something on the lines of "play coolly, slowly, and try to treat all positions with equanimity." I thought that was amazing yeah. advice. Yeah. Not yeah. easily mastered, though. No,
0: that's right. Whenever we looked at a game, it's it's again going back to this point I was making earlier that the the the, the sort of average chess player is always wanting to make a move. He looks at a position, he sees something, he thinks is going to work he makes the move. But no, sit on your hands, keep looking at the position, look again and again and again. See if there's something you haven't seen in that first moment, and then try and find the true move, the best move. And that's what uh, the very strong players are really good at doing, is finding the very, very best move. And of course, often they'll be playing in classical chess, you'll play maybe 40 moves in two hours, and you may have five or six critical positions in those 40 moves. So you'll have, in a way, six very tricky puzzles to solve. I mean, potentially more than six. Obviously, you have 40 moves to make, and you're looking for, to make the best move 40 times in two hours. But there will be five or six critical positions, probably. And then you need to spend a bit more time and really decide which way this game should go. What I also like about chess is, it's, and you were asking whether it's like life, it's like life in the sense of every... Every position you get to, you have many directions in which you can go. And of course, there are many roads which you don't travel down. And so it's this idea that that every game, of, of course, every game isn't unique, because often at the beginning, you, you do tend to have the opening theory such and other. you do tend to go down a particular route. But in, uh, they still say that the number of chess games you can play is infinite. And so I like this idea that all these the roads you could take are a bit like life, in that you know, the, you, you you play one game, but you could have played five million games. You could have married five million people, or you know, had the infinite number of jobs, or but you but somehow one game emerges, one one route through the thicket emer- emerges.
1: How much does emotions play in all of this? Because clearly you've got a lot of tactics on the board, but keeping your head and not getting you know not losing the run of yourself is crucial.
0: Yeah, absolutely crucial. And and some players are. Are better than others. Uh, you, you mentioned John as his, um, his model is um, Michael Adams, Mickey Adams, who's the highest rated British player of all times. of all time. And he says that if you look at Adams when he plays, you can never tell whether he's winning, losing, easily on top of things, in complete trouble. He is completely calm and cool. But some players become really, they start rocking at the board, they start beating their head against the wall, they're they're become incredibly emotionally caught up in the thing. And if you do that, you just become completely drained and you can't think straight. There's a famous player called, um, a Ukrainian player, um, Ivanchuk, Vasily Ivanchuk, probably the most, certainly the most talented player never to have become world champion. And people say the sole reason he didn't become world champion was that he often, in key situations, he couldn't, couldn't control this kind of nervous energy it would become too keyed up. And so again the vessel is just a very cool calculating machine.
1: You mention a guy, um, Professor Stephen Peters. I think he was the uh, psychiatrist to the British cycling team. And I know he, he helped Ronnie O'Sullivan, the snooker player, out quite a he bit did. in yeah. terms of the kind of the emotion. And the England
0: football team, I think. As oh, well. right. Yeah. He
1: wrote The Chimp Paradox. And yeah. it's, a, it's quite, a, it's a, quite a, a philosophy he's got going. Can you talk me through it?
0: Well, he, he said that you've got this chimp on your shoulder who all the time is telling you to do these impulsive things. And you, you need the chimp's energy and dynamism, but you've got to keep the chimp's impulsiveness in check. And I think I was saying, that. Oh, he, he, he suggested I was becoming too, in the good moments I would, I would get too high, and in the bad moments too low. I, did, I, I just wasn't able to keep that, that sort of steadiness.
1: You're playing against your own limitations, as well as your opponent's limitations and their strengths. Yeah, of course. It's and an amazing often, way to look at it, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and often you're playing, um, they tend to organize tournaments in such a way that you'll be playing with people of, of a similar strength to yours. Obviously, if I play the world champion, as I did once, I'm going to lose quite quickly. But um, if you play somebody of your own ability, then in a way, ta- the talent thing um, is, is equivalent. So you then have to, these other factors of, of the way you handle the, the sort of time controls and the way you, you handle yourself become really important. Um, it becomes that emotional side of the game becomes really critical.
2: If you want a lover I'll do anything you ask me to And if you want another kind of love, I'll wear a mask for you. If you want a partner, take my hand. Or if you want to strike me down in anger, here I stand. I'm your man. If you want a boxer, I will step into the ring for you. And if you want a doctor, I'll examine every inch of you. If you want a driver, climb inside. Or if you want to take me for a ride. No you can I'm your man Are ah, the moon's too break, the chains to tag, the beast won't go to sleep. I've been running through these promises to you that I made and I could not keep. Ah, but a man never got a woman back Not by begging on his knees Or I'd crawl to you, baby, and I'd fall at your feet And I'd howl at your beauty, let the like dog in heat And I'd claw at your heart and I'd tear at your sheet I'd say, please I am your man a sleepable moment on the road I will steer for you and if you wanna work the street alone I'll disappear for you if you want a father for your child or only wanna walk with me why Across the sand I'm your man If you wanna love him, I'll do anything that you ask me to And if you wanna
0: Talking Books, our new song, 106 to 108.
1: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with writer and journalist Stephen Moss, whose latest book, The Rookie An Odyssey Through Chess and Life, has just been published by Bloomsbury, where Stephen entertainingly muses on some of the legends of chess men who are happy to kill each other on 64 squares. I asked Stephen about the position of women in the game An English Grandmaster Nigel Short, who controversially claimed that men were hardwired to be better chess players than women. I put it to Stephen, has a guy gone mad?
0: Yes, um, Nigel is, um, uh, was, was, is one of Britain's greatest players. He played Kasparov for the world title in 1993. I think he did make a few ill-considered remarks. Um, about uh, female chess players. We should deal with the exception first. Uh, There was a Hungarian player, Judith Polgar, now retired, who did get into the uh, top ten, or all sexes, both sexes. So I think she was like number eight or something in the world. But she is far higher than any other woman player has ever got. I think the current women's world champion uh, Chinese player, Hu Yifan, is maybe top 50, top 40, top 50. But she's not yet reached the very, very peak. I think the number of competitive women chess players is around in the US, UK, presumably Ireland too, is around 6%. Now, some people argue that women's performance is simply a numbers thing, that if you've got 94 men competing in six women, then the likelihood is that, that the men in the upper echelons are going to outnumber the women. But I think... It's very difficult because Judith Polgar shows it is possible for a woman to to reach the very highest level. Now, Polgar, when she was... I think she was the strongest player, again, of either sex at the age of 14, 15. Um, One of of the youngest grandmasters of all time. I think she became a grandmaster earlier than Bobby Fischer. And her father, she was homeschooled with two other very strong chess-playing sisters. And her father almost consciously set out to create... Uh, an incredibly strong chess player. And she only played in male tournaments, uh, which is another factor because women's tournaments tend to be weaker in a way you can get into your comfort zone. So it looks as if, in a way, you have to be gender-blind, uh, that you have to be... Because, I mean, a, a very strong chess player is going to be a tremendous player at the age of 10 years old. If you're not already super strong at 10, uh, you're unlikely to make... You know, people these days, some players, the, the, Magnus Carlsen and his, um, his rival in the World Championship, which was played at the, the back end of last year, were both grandmasters at the age of 13. So unless you're incredibly strong at that age, it, it's like, you know, if you become a champion golfer, you probably have to be swinging a club at the age of five. Similarly, you really probably need to start playing around the age of six and to be, to show talent very early. You know, the, the classic thing is your father shows you the moves. You beat him sort of in the second game. You just kind of understand chess. And um, so it looks like, going back to the women point, it looks as if you have to be gender-blind. Women need to just play against men and, uh, you know, see how they go. And, and try, obviously the, every tournament organised in the world is trying to get more women to play. They've just had a big tournament in Gibraltar where they have, uh, I think they, they let women play free or they, they have, and they have big prizes for women, women players. So tournament organizers are very conscious that if chess is to progress, it needs to shed